And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to the Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman. Bruce, over the weekend at Elite 11, you broke a story that, from what you told me, you were under the assumption had already been broken. Yeah, so the background on this is Malik Zaire, the former Notre Dame starting quarterback, I'll be a briefly, uh, graduate transfer, had been on the market for a while. And last uh, a week and a half ago or so, I had reported that Zaire was expected to transfer to UF if the SEC had amended its graduate transfer policy. Well, on Friday, uh, three days ago as we're taping, they did that. And in the wake of it, Malik Zaire had tweeted maybe an hour after the news got out, let's go with exclamation point. So that was kind of cryptic, but I think it, you know, I assumed it meant, as a lot of people did, that he's heading to Gainesville. So when I'm out at the Elite 11 on Saturday night, it was the second day of the camp. Uh, and there's other media there, but it was the second day of the camp, and I saw Malik, and I know him a little bit. I've you know covered him and been around him you know, basically for the past few years. Uh, we started talking, and at one point he told me, yeah, I'm heading to Gainesville on Wednesday. It's actually going to be the first time he's ever visited UF, but he's excited to play it at Florida. And he thinks it's, you know, he loves the challenge of it being in the SEC, which he kind of compared it to the major leagues. And he's going to embrace that. So, and then we talked a little more. He told me he was going to be, uh, you know, I said, what are you going to study there? He said journalism. He thinks that he wants to maybe even write uh, as part mm. of his graduate degree. Did you try to talk I, him out of that? I, you know what? I said, you know, there's been a lot of layoffs in the business, Malik. You know, you want to, you want to stay and look on the on-air side because he's a pretty dynamic kid. He's a good, he's a good speaker and very, very outgoing and and ebullient is the way I would describe him. So maybe the TV side's a little more uh, makes more sense given our given the, the state When's of our industry. When's the last time, if there has been this, I don't can't recall that a college football player. Like a notable college football player after finishing college, maybe after finishing the NFL, became a sports writer. I got one because he was he's a friend of mine who I work with at ESPN Magazine, Alan Grant. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Alan Grant once led the nation in punt returns for Stanford and, and played in the NFL for four or five years. And he did uh, – he worked at ESPN Magazine as an NFL writer and actually liked to write other stuff more, rather than NFL. But – uh he definitely helped our uh, helped our rec league basketball team because even at like 35, you have an NFL cornerback and a kick returner. He's still going to be probably the best athlete on the on the court. Um, but anyway, back to Malik. So after we talked, I kind of walked back to some other guys I knew and just tweeted out, spoke to Malik Zaire, uh, told me he's heading to plans to head to Florida on Wednesday and very excited about the challenge playing the SEC. Uh, and then subsequently posted something on my Facebook page. And within literally within five minutes of me posting, I kind of glanced back at Twitter because I saw my app mentions were blowing up. I think it got retweeted over 100 times. And the two guys I was with, one's in the media, one's not, uh, said, did you just break this story? I'm like, I kind of thought it was already broken, but <laughs> there, I, there was no real – like Malik hadn't really commented specifically on it till we talked. He didn't send out uh, an actual like I am committing to Florida tweet. He did not. And what surprised me a little bit was it was his second day there and there is some other media there and some other reporters. So I wasn't sure if anybody had talked to him on Friday. Um, I was tied up with some family stuff on Saturday earlier in the day. I figured somebody had talked to him. But, you know, and then I you know, thought about it more. And I was like, you know, most of the guys who cover this are recruiting reporters and they're really primarily focused and locked in on, on what they're seeing from the from the guys who are, you know, at this point, rising high school uh, seniors, not a grad transfer, and uh, certainly one. You know, I guess there was somebody who covered UF there who subsequently talked to him later for two four seven later that night. But uh, interesting story. We'll see how it goes. I mean, you know, 
Malik's talented, but remember, he's he's thrown less than 100 career passes. I think six touchdowns, zero picks. Uh, he's going in late. It's not like he's had spring spring football to get acclimated. Uh, Felipe Franks has a big, strong arm, but he's never really played. They liked what they saw from him in the spring. I'm curious to see how it's going to work out. The, the two biggest question marks I have, and this is from what I've heard from people you know, who've been around Malik, is just – how consistent can he be and also how quickly can he pick up a new system, you know, because he's going to have to hit the ground running there. So I'm with you. I'm, you know, I, I do think this has a potential to be one of those really big grad transfers that has a big effect on the season. But it is crazy to me that Malik Zaire has generated this much hype. When else would you see a guy, a grad transfer that everybody would get this excited about who's basically played in four games, uh, you know, in, in any sort of significant role? Now, he looked good in that bowl game against LSU, certainly in that season opener two years ago when they clobbered Texas, he was off to a good, well, they actually, they were about to lose to Virginia when he got hurt. He was, he? Str- he was struggling in that game. And yeah. then, uh, and then Deshaun Kaiser came but, in. And but think about him. back to that time, he was so well thought of already that when he got hurt, everybody thought, well, Notre Dame season's down the drain and didn't realize obviously that Deshaun Kaiser could step in and do what he did. And then to start last season, Brian Kelly, and he took a lot of criticism for this, basically had them on equal footing, that they were going to just both play against Texas. I was actually there for their media day, and his explanation was, you know, these are two of the best players on the team. we got to try to find a way to get them both on the field. So there is a lot of reason for Florida fans to be excited, especially given the just awful run of quarterbacks they've had there post-Tim Tebow, with the one exception of that one-half season with Will Greer. So there's reason to be excited, but I, I would also think you'd want to temper those expectations a little bit because of all the things you said. I, it's just not realistic to me. He's not going to be Russell Wilson. Could he come in and be a solid starter, a good dual threat player who helps them be more productive on offense than they have been, though? Absolutely. If I say to you, because um, I feel like the you know we've seen all over the map. We've seen Russell Wilson, who was even better than he was at NC State, which was he was terrific. He was really productive at NC State in three years as starter. We saw Vernon Adams, who came in and was like a, a like just lit up the sky when he was when he was on the field. Now he was banged up and everything. Uh, Danny O'Brien was the opposite end of the spectrum. He was like all ACC freshman, and then he went to Wisconsin and was kind of never heard from again. Uh, your guy Jeremiah Masoli, who had a lot of success at Oregon. Did not really thrive at at Ole Miss. Um, you know, it's 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 tough to say. What, More recently, what Davis Webb. Davis uh, Webb had a good run. If yeah. he could be, yeah, Davis Webb actually had a really good run for Cal on a bad team. I mean, he said, I think he won them probably as bad as they were last year. I think they would have been, you know, maybe a two and ten team without him. Well, let me ask you this: Do you think he can do this? Everett Golson, who Zaire was, you know, uh, supplanted eventually at one point. Uh, grad transfer to Florida State two years ago, got hurt at one point, but played nine games, 67% completions, 1,778 yards, 11 touchdowns, three interceptions. Do you think he can do that? Statistically, I think Everett was better than he felt like he was on the field. Yeah. Here's where they're, they are di- really opposite personalities. I mean, Everett Golson is, I, I would describe him, especially for a quarterback, he came across as being a little bit aloof. Whereas Malik Zaire is a light up the room kind of guy. And I think if you're a graduate transfer to come into a new situation, I think that's pretty, that's a, that's a good thing. So I think that gives him a better chance, but like, look, Everett Olson actually played in a national title game. It didn't go well, but he, you know, he played a lot more than, than, than what Malik did. I mean, Malik's basically spent the last five months in Arizona training with a private QB coach, Dennis Guile. And we'll see, you know, like he, I guess on Friday I didn't see how he, he he struggled there when in some of the passing drills and on Saturday when I saw him he looked very good you know and that's the question with him is consistency because as you said it's not just been the quarterback play Florida's offense really for much of the last seven or eight years has been just absolutely dreadful and yet they've been to back to back SEC championship games so if you're a Florida fan you're thinking if this guy is good. If we were able to get there with no offense, this guy's good, and then you know they've got some other pieces now. If they can get the offense cranking, not even not not a fifty point a game offense by any means, just get it cranking a little bit more, and the defense 
Well, there's a lot of pieces to replace on defense. I don't know if they'll be as dominant defensively as they have been in the last couple of years. But, you know, you start to basically – let me ask you this. We both have talked about how Georgia is the favorite in the SEC East. Does this Zaire news change that for you? Do you Does it make you revisit who you think could win the SEC East? Uh, no, no, I just, I'm not, I need to see more from their offense before I believe anything from it. I mean, uh, here's why I like Georgia because they have two terrific running backs. They have a, they have the best group of running backs on that side of the, uh, of the division. But really when I look at it, I mean, which quarterback do you have the most confidence in, in that division? Jake Bentley from South Carolina. I mean, who are you buying in? Jake Bentley had a really solid, promising freshman campaign. I think he'll be really good. The question is, do you think Jacob Eason takes the next step, becomes the superstar quarterback that I'm not, he was billed to be coming out of high school? I'm not I'm not ready to put all the chips on, on Jacob Eason. I'm going to hold yeah. back on that. Well, you know, the SEC East just continues to be um, not very impressive. Speaking of the SEC East, Destin last week. Well, wait, before we get the, to, That's quite a segue. I like, like that. It was now quite I'm a segue, but, now but now I'm going to yeah, no, now I'm going to go back on it and realize that I should first ask you any good tidbits from the high school quarterbacks you saw at Elite 11. Yeah, a few. I'm, I'm glad we did circle back to this. Um, this, was a, this was the biggest group physically by far that I can remember, and I've covered this thing for 15-plus years. I mean, there was a lot of big dudes who were 6'4", 6'5", 6'6". You know, some guys were up to 230 pounds. Um, they look like grown men. I mean, a lot of them really did. Uh, I, you know, they were saying they thought this was as good a group as they've they've had since the Dilfer group's been running it, which is like five or six years. Um, I, you know, I didn't spend as much time. I was there Saturday and Sunday, but I was not in every session like I was, you know, a few years ago. The guys who jumped out, Trevor Lawrence, there's two great quarterbacks or two terrific prospects from Georgia who kind of headlined this group. Trevor Lawrence, long-haired kid who's like 6'6", six, six, you know, 210 pounds, committed to Clemson, uh, grew up as a Tennessee fan, is locked in all, all Clemson. He'll get there early. He was as advertised. The other one is Justin Fields, who's committed to Penn State. He's about 6'3", 225, terrific athlete. He is good at everything. I mean, he's smart. He's athletic. He's dynamic. Um, people love his work ethic. He loves James Franklin, but he's still, he told me he's getting a lot of, you know, a lot of pressure from Auburn and Georgia and Florida and Florida State and UNC. Um, but, you know, so those two top guys are big time guys. And there was another kid from LA, Tanner McKee, who's, 66220 look really good. And then there was a few guys I'd never heard like I didn't know anything about Devin Leary, who was a kid from the Northeast who's headed to NC State. He's not very big, but if I was an NC State fan, I'd be very excited about him. He showed a big arm. Um there's another one that I'd never Gus Bradley's son. I didn't know he was anything about him, but he's from Jacksonville. Was every time I was like, who's that? And then I realized it was that kid. He threw it really good and he's like a under the radar guy. So I thought it was a, a really, really strong group as as one of the better groups I can remember, you know, in, in 15 years and certainly the biggest group. Is there anybody there who's not committed? Yeah, there's a few kids who weren't. Um, there was, there's a kid from Phoenix and I want to say his name is, is pronounced shoe or show Tyler show. Who's a really lanky kid. He did very well. Um, I think there's, there's a handful of kids who are either aren't committed or they're still, you know, they're committed, but it, you could see a battle. Carter Bradley, that's that's Gus Bradley's son. He is uh, the kid from Jacksonville. He's open, and I think there's going to be an interesting battle. You know, I know I see from what I heard, Toledo was a big in the picture, maybe Wisconsin, but I would imagine you'll see a lot more traffic on that kid. He was really accurate. He's, you know, he. He, uh, I hate to compare him to like a Jake Browning, but that's kind of because Jake Browning obviously was was not a camp guy. He was a he was a great high school quarterback, but in terms of accuracy, in terms of anticipation, he did that. He's not huge physically, but I, I really like what I saw. He's he's one that I think you'll hear a lot more of. I know, obviously, every school gets excited about their 
their hotshot quarterback recruit. But I got to think Utah fans have the most reason to be excited just because yeah, they just Jack haven't Tuttle. had – Yeah, they haven't had a big-time quarterback there um, since Alex Ryan Smith. Johnson. No, you keep saying Alex Smith. You keep forgetting about Brian Johnson. Are we going to call them an undefeated season? Yeah, I guess. I, I don't know if I – in retrospect, maybe this is not fair, but I don't know if I think of Brian Johnson as a big-time guy. Not a big-time guy. Certainly wasn't the number one pick in the NFL draft. But, you know, just the last few – I mean, Travis Wilson, his last year was pretty good, but it took a long time to get there. They're winning – they've been – you know, Utah's been successful the last few years, but they've been successful in spite of their passing game, not because of it. So – it's a lot of onus to put on a guy. As you know, half these Elite 11 guys don't end up even starting at their original school, much less becoming a star. They'll end up, half of them will end up transferring. But uh, no, I, I think that's reason for them to be excited. Are you ready for me to circle back to the SEC? Well, let me fin in. We didn't really mention sure. this kid's name. Jack Tuttle is the kid we we're referencing. He's from the San Diego area. He's about 6'4. Uh, one big thing, which I think bodes well for him, is uh, one of the guys who doesn't really work directly with the Elite 11, but is is around it as he's part of the virtual reality group's driver that has, has, uh, has, has you know, now in with a lot of college programs. Trent Edwards, former NFL quarterback, played at Stanford. And uh, Trent and I had a long talk, and we talked about Jack and how – uh, the kind of questions he asked, the kind of how focused he was. Usually, guys who are who you hear people talk about the way he talked about Jack, those guys don't turn out to be busts. Now, I'm not saying Jack Tuttle is going to turn out to be uh, Matt Ryan, but I'd be surprised if Jack Tuttle does not turn out to be a very productive college quarterback because of just the way they talked about his his focus, maturity, all those other things. Um, so anyway, now I think, yes, now I'm ready. Oh, one other thing. For Michigan fans, it'll be very interesting to see how Joe Milton works out at, uh, for the Wolverines with Jim Harbaugh. He's a kid from Orlando. He is very big, 6'4", 235. Throw, I mean, he has the cannon for an arm cliche. He throws it through a wall. I mean, he does look like he throws a very heavy ball at times, but we'll see what happens. I mean, he's a, he's an intriguing prospect. Like I said, big Big arm is just, you know, does he, can he throw, make all the throws in terms of can he take a lot off it? Does he throw a touch? Those things. But there's quite a piece of clay Jim Harbaugh is going to have coming in next year. You know, it used to be, correct me if I'm wrong, but it used to be that if a program got one of these five star type quarterbacks in a class, they would then not recruit a quarterback in the next class, you know, knowing they don't want to create a log jam. But now, because these kids transfer so much, they just get one every single class if they can. And so I'm saying this because Michigan just signed Dylan McCaffrey. He's coming in this year. He's considered to be a big-time quarterback. Now you're going to have another one the next year. As we know, they are not going to both be there for four or five years. No, and best example of it is uh, a lot of people thought Hunter Johnson was the top quarterback in the 2017 signing class. And here comes uh, here comes Trevor Lawrence, who right now is considered the number one overall recruit by a lot of people. He's a quarterback, and he's heading to Clemson. And when we talked on Sunday, I said, you know, I brought that up and said, you know, didn't bother you at all. He goes, no, wherever I go, I know I got to compete, and I'm going to have to try to beat somebody out for that job. And so, I mean, this kid was not phased at all in the way he presented. I'm, I don't – you know, like there was no fluctuation, you know, anything, you know, at one point we talked about him growing up a Tennessee fan and he was like, he was like, no, I'm on board everything about, about Clemson. It's the coaches. It's where it's at. It's the kind of success they're having. You know, he just like, there was no hesitation or anything. And I think sometimes that's the attitude you need to have. And the kids who were kind of scared off a little bit about it, maybe that's not the kid you want quarterback in your team anyway. Well, so as you may remember, I did a story about this in uh, around signing day this year mm-hmm. about just how high a rate the quarterbacks transfer it now it's 50 percent and yes that's a big part of it they all feel like they are going to beat out whoever but i just also think they now know that there's always a plan b so if it doesn't work out if you don't beat the guy out you just transfer to the next school it's so whereas maybe a generation ago there was a stigma attached to that now it's just you just know that that's that's possibly the way it's going to go. And I don't think they go in thinking, oh, I'm not going to beat him out. They think, of course, I'm going to beat him out. But if they don't, it's not the worst thing in the world. 
Yeah, and the challenge too is sometimes when it's a guy who's not the starter yet, I mean, right now, don't worry about Dylan McCaffrey. He's not going to be the starting quarterback. The job is going to be open at some point when you have Wilton Spate there. The question is, you know, like there's a reason why I think UCLA had a hard time getting a quarterback till this year after Josh Rosen. It's when you have that freshman starter who you, who's probably going to be the guy for the next two years, then maybe the, the next class is harder. It, I think it's harder when that kid is the freshman starter and he's going to be there for a while as opposed to, hey, you just signed the number one guy, but he's in the pipeline. I think there's a distinction there I would make. And yet at Georgia, you know, Jacob Eason was the savior. He was committed there mm-hmm. for two years. Everybody knew he was going. Everyone knew he would probably start as a true freshman. And yet the next four or five star, Jake Fromm, comes in this year. And, and already you saw the stories this spring. Could he beat out Jacob Eason? Didn't dissuade him. No, it didn't. And who knows? Maybe he knows something that other people don't. We'll, we'll see how, it, uh, how that one unfolds over the next two years. Okay, SEC. So SEC meetings wrapped up last week. I don't know if, like, people – so SEC meetings wrapped up last week in Destin. And I don't know if, like, SEC media, just because of the thirst for content there, have to come up with a new storyline every year. But they made a – much was made this week about should they switch up the divisions. In particular, should Auburn move to the east? And there, and it wasn't just out of nowhere. Their own AD and coach are kind of pushing for it. Now, it is not on the agenda. There is no – you know, movement whatsoever for divisional realignment in the SEC, but it hasn't stopped people from taking it and running with it. And I had to do a triple take when I saw a column that came out Monday morning from a longtime reporter columnist in Tennessee, John Adams, saying it's unfair that Tennessee has to play Alabama every year. And basically, if Auburn is going to move to the east, uh, then Tennessee should I don't know. They should end these cross-division annual rivalry games. Tennessee shouldn't have to play Alabama every year. They're rival. Do you think this is a case, knowing the media as you do and the cycle, do you think this is a case of, you know, people need something to write or something to talk about on their radio show? Possibly. Uh, well, very much so, yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know, John. I don't know if he wrote that just for that purpose or not. He may genuinely believe that it's unfair. But... One thing about college football is people sometimes think that we get into a state, so right now Alabama is what it is, and people get into the mistake of thinking this is how it's always going to be. And do you know that before Nick Saban got there, now that was a decade ago at this point, but in the 12 seasons before Nick Saban took over at Alabama, Tennessee won 10 of the 12 meetings. Tennessee owned that rivalry at one point when Fulmer really had it it rolling. I don't know, was it unfair then that Alabama had to play Tennessee every year? No, and I mean, look, life's unfair. I'm so, you know, that, that attitude, I think, is you kind of shrug your shoulders at it. I mean, Tennessee should not be, comp- and I don't think Tennessee is complaining. I mean, when you have the media complaining, it's maybe a different story, but um, I when think. And it also plays in with the idea that the divisions are unbalanced, and certainly the West is has been a lot stronger than the East for probably, well, probably since Alabama got this thing rolling. Uh, but again, that wasn't always the case. I remember long stretches of time when Florida, Tennessee was the premier rivalry in the SEC and Georgia was pretty good and the West was the afterthought. This stuff all moves in cycles. Nick Saban will retire at some point and it'll move back over to the East. That's just the way this stuff works. Yeah. So let's get back to the thing that, you know, really, you know, get back to this point with Jay Jacobs, the Auburn AD and the discussion about Auburn shifting conference, shifting divisions. Um, Two things that jump out at me. And I had this conversation with our colleague, Joel Klatt, the other day, uh, a little bit about this, which is now with the Big 12 going to basically just a lump of teams as opposed to two divisions, and they're still going to have a conference title game. If you are a another conference, would you think okay, this model might be more more interesting for us because it probably gives us a better chance of a tougher uh, title game matchup, and you know you don't have that risk of a uh, you know we could have the team that's number four in the country versus the team that's number twenty two in the country. If you have you know, and typically we see this in bad divisions. There's one good division, there's one lesser division. Yeah, but I'm of the opinion, and we'll have to see how it plays out, that the Big 12 is making a mistake by doing it this way for that very reason. This is You're, you're increasing the chance of your national best playoff contender getting 
knocked off in the championship game because they're definitely going to be playing the second-best team. You have totally eliminated the possibility of putting two teams in the playoff. I think you're better off doing it the way the SEC does. Once in a while, you get a, you know, like uh, there was a period there where you had a bunch of basically BCS championship play-in games, two between Florida, Alabama, one between Alabama and Georgia in 2012. Now, since then, it's been kind of, it's been pretty lopsided. But, and, and for whatever reason, it's always worked out for the SEC. They, they, I can't remember, there was one time when they had a team that would have played in the national championship that got, that got knocked off. It was way back in 2001, Tennessee lost to Saban's LSU team. Uh, but other than that, it hasn't really worked against them. Whereas in the Big 12, when they still had a championship game, they had many occasions where the team that was BCS championship bound lost. So I don't know if I'm all these other conferences, I would sit back and wait and see how it works out for the Big 12 before I would consider changing to that model. I also just think that in the SEC, more so than the other conferences, there's a lot of, I mean, people are just pretty invested in those divisional races. It means a lot to win the SEC East, even if you're not, you know, even though Florida has gotten, you know, spanked by Alabama the last couple of years, there's still a lot of pride among those Florida fans that they beat out Tennessee and they beat out Georgia and they won the East division. Yeah. And I think that, you know, look, I, I do think there is some of that that goes on where, you know, it's like with the bowls, people, from these teams want to say, Hey, they want to hang up the division, you know, banner somewhere in their facility. We were the big 10 West champs or we were the, this or that. And, you know, if you have one division that takes away from that. Right. So my hunch at this point is that they don't, the divisions don't go away. I mean, many people have made very solid arguments why you should get rid of them. Uh, It certainly is making scheduling. I will say this, it's making scheduling a lot harder when they're at 14 teams, it would probably be a lot easier if they didn't have divisions and you could change out almost entirely from year to year which teams they played. I mean, right now, in these 14-team divisions with an eight-game schedule, you go seven years without facing some of the teams in the other division. You go 12 years, or I think 12 years, without playing the other team's stadium. That's nuts. You're just like you're not even in the same conference. Yeah. I mean, look, if you're predicting, you think this goes anywhere five years from now? Uh, which part of it? That people rethink the division models. I think everybody will watch the Big 12 model. And if it looks like it's made the Big 12 championship game more interesting and it hasn't really, it's helped not hurt their playoff chances, then yes, I could see others copying it. And then if it works the other way, they won't. And the Big 12 will do the divisions. As stupid as the idea of having two five-team divisions would seem. I I like, I, I came, I remember writing who should be in the divisions and, because right now, you know, they, they, they're tinkering with it. They moved Bedlam up to early November to avoid them possibly playing, but you don't know. I mean, who's, it, we don't know if those are going to be the two teams. It could be two teams that are playing Thanksgiving weekend and end up playing again the next week. That's the other danger if you don't have divisions. Agreed, agreed. Speaking of the Big 12, so the narrative, certainly on this podcast in many places for much of the last year or two, has been what a dysfunctional mess that conference is and with it, with expansion, with on the field, with recruiting. And then, of course, that leads to the obvious, well, is the Big 12 in trouble? The next, you know, is Oklahoma and Texas, are they going to bail the next time it comes up? So the Big 12 had their meetings last week. Doesn't get quite as much coverage as Destin, but nonetheless... I, I think people don't realize how well the Big 12 teams are doing financially under the current model. They are doing very well. Well, we talk, Didn't we talk a little about this a, a year ago with George Schroeder um, about, I don't want to call it the hidden money, but some of the deals, obviously, that people know about the Longhorn Network. They don't necessarily think about Oklahoma and their, and their you know side deals or some of these other places where there is more money, right? And I think that, that because of the volatility and some of the outspokenness from – the, especially with both Oklahoma schools, I think you get kind of a feeling of of uh, uncertainty and instability, which is, look, I think some of that's real, but I think that adds to this, right? I think the instability has largely been created by one person, David Bourne, and his kind of like when he speaks and shifting of the winds, it makes it seem like a really messed up conference. There have been other things as well. David Bourne spoke again after these meetings, and now he is very much... 
No one is significantly stronger than we are in any of the Power Five conferences. We can hold our own with any of them in regard to our financial picture. Bourne said the Sooners, despite the assertion of some outside the league, aren't desperately seeking to find another conference or as any other school. Emphatically not, said Bourne. You can tell that from my own conversations. We're more optimistic than we've been in some time about the future of the Big 12 and the strength and stability of the conference. So the money is... Uh, the, the revenue distribution that went out this past week was $34.8 million per school, up $4.4 million from last year. Now, these TV deals, the way they're structured, it's always going to go up a, at least a little bit every year. You don't get the same amount every year. It's structured to go up with each passing year. And then the numbers that you see reported are the average. The per-team average has nearly quadrupled over the years. Schools shared $106 million a decade ago, about $8.8 million per team. A um, couple factors, the championship game coming back adds some revenue as well. Now, I think what you're referring to, that conversation we had with Schroeder, and this is an important thing to note, when you see the Big Ten or the SEC uh, revenue distribution numbers, that's that's the whole thing. There, That's every sort, every TV tier, every uh, postseason stream, that's all it. The Big 12 schools still have their own tier three rights, most notably the Longhorn Network. Oklahoma also has its own network. I believe the airs in the state. So $34.8 million is the baseline. There are schools that are making well more than that. And once you get up to that, you definitely are talking about Big Ten SEC-type money. As it is, $34.8 million is a pretty nice—there's a pretty nice gap now between them and what the uh, Pac-12 and the ACC schools are getting. So— I wouldn't be running to write the obits of the Big 12 just yet. This financial model, at the very least, is working for them. You know, you mentioned the ACC. People uh, who cover the sport, and certainly a lot of fans of it you see on social media, will rip the passion of the Conference of Champions quite a bit. But when it comes to the ACC, certainly, you know, you have a couple of national title teams in the last few years, certainly with Clemson and FSU. I think people forget maybe that they're, you know, I don't know if they forget, but it's, it's interesting. They kind of get a pass on sometimes, I feel like, of where they where they are in this in this discussion. You know, people kind of dump on the Big 12. I think some of it comes from the, you know, the low draft number, right, that they've had in the last few years. The issues with defense certainly add to it. And I think it kind of all bundles into this, right? And and with the exception of of Austin, you don't have a lot of big market towns in, in big 12 cities. They're all pretty small. I mean, Lubbock's decent size, but the rest of them are not very big either. By the way, real quick, just to put it in perspective, Clemson got the biggest revenue share of the ACC teams this past year at $27.9 million. Um, the that's big a, 12, That's a huge drop compared to the Big 12. It is. It's a pretty sizable gap. I think most people thought that the Big 12 – ACC and Pac-12 were about the same, but they're not. Not even Big close. Big 12's definitely doing better. And I don't totally understand why. I mean, that TV deal was made quite a little while ago at this point. But, you know, give Bob Bowlesby credit. He's 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 worked this thing. And also, you know, there's something to be said for splitting the pie less ways. And, and that's another big reason why they haven't expanded. They like that they only have to split it 20, 10 ways instead of 12 or 14 the ACC, of course, is banking a lot on the ACC network, which hasn't even launched yet. Um, oh, here's a comparison of the five conferences. Uh, SEC's range, distribution range for fiscal 2016 ranged from uh, 39 to 40, 39 to 42 million per team. Big Ten, 34.8 million. That's going to go up considerably once this new deal kicks in this year. Uh, so this Big 12 number is now outdated. You heard what it was before. And Pac-12s was the lowest at $28.7 million per school. And the Pac-12s is not going up by a lot because that network isn't doing well. So um, I'm sorry, I've forgotten. What was your question? My question was just about the perception of the ACC because, you know, we hear a lot of belly aching about the Pac-12 as a brand and as the passion of it. You just don't hear that with the ACC. And as you alluded to with the, with the ACC network coming in, but the ACC network's coming in at an interesting time because of, you know, ESPN's fingerprints on it and the, un, I don't want to say the uncertainty around, I guess it's fair to say the uncertainty around ESPN, but just some of the issues that that, that company is dealing with in the wake of layoffs and, and cord cutting as it's, a, as it's kind of impacting their business model. 
Yeah, I think it's nuts. I don't, for the life of me, understand how you can launch a linear cable channel from scratch around a conference that is extremely passionate about basketball, but basketball is not football. You have some extremely passionate football schools in Florida State, Clemson, Virginia Tech, Louisville, and that's about it. You also have a whole bunch of schools that you know are not going to draw a lot of eyeballs TV-wise. So at the time, I think it's almost been a year since that was announced. At the time, I talked to some people who thought, you know, it's going to be okay because either ESPN's either going to just launch on one of their existing channels like ESPNU or ESPN has, you know, contracts that expire with Time Warner or Verizon, you know, and you need to charter whoever, and they can just throw this in with the other channels when they're negotiating their new deal. But I don't know, the whole thing, the whole ACC network thing puzzles me. But to the ACC's credit, the reason you don't hear the whatever criticisms about them that you do the Big 12, the ACC is as stable as it gets. They have now signed over their grant of rights, I believe, to 2036. So these teams are going to be there for another 20 years. Notre Dame hovers over it. Our guy Tim Brando always stirring up the masses with his, <laughs> with his theory that they're going to join for football at any moment. That always hovers as a possibility. And just being associated with them helps them out a lot. So they're in great shape. Even if the per share or whatever isn't quite up to the others right now, they're in great shape. The Pac-12, you hear a lot of grumbling because the network hasn't done well. I mean, plain and simple. They also just don't have... It's just the way it is. It's, they're never going to have anywhere near the level of, of of kind of rabid interest in their product that there is for the certainly the SEC and also the Big Ten. And then in the Big 12, again, money, financially, they are fine. But they still have some very real competitive issues that we've talked about many times. I mean, those recruiting numbers are alarming. The draft numbers are alarming. Obviously, they were clearly fifth out of five last year on the field. Now, both you and I are bullish on the Big 12 coming on the Big 12's prospects for 2017, but they've got some real serious issues that need to be addressed. And I and maybe you just can throw this money towards something other than lockers. But uh, you know, I think I do think from everything I'd heard, certainly this weekend, I think Tom Herman's recruiting will alleviate a little of that. If Texas is a flagship school in that league, which it's supposed to be, along with certainly Oklahoma, I think that put some polish on it and that would change it. By well, the way, I definitely think that the big, the whole perception of the big 12, not the whole, a big part of the perception of the big 12 being me hinges on Texas hinges on Texas. Of course, wouldn't it be just the big 12's luck if Tom Herman gets it rolling in Texas, they're contending for national titles and Bob Stoops retires at Oklahoma and they fall into to muck. Yeah. If Bob Stoops retires, I, I would imagine that, you know, Lincoln Riley will step in and they will, I don't know if they'll be a, if they can do everything Bob Stoops did with you know, all the titles, but I think they will. I think they have some. Uh, I think they have some resources there that'll that'll bode I well for them. I think Bob Stoops goes completely underappreciated, and I think maybe won't be fully appreciated until the day he retires. And by the way, he's been buying our property in Chicago. I don't know why, but you know that leads to conspiracy theories about it. But my gosh, you really I don't know whoever it is, Lincoln Riley. Um, Chip Kelly, whoever you want to name, good luck replicating one, two. We will count. We will. Where just somebody tell me how many conference titles he's won? I don't know, like fifteen. I mean, it's. I don't want to say he might be like ten for seventeen or so. Somebody try replicating, starting with the year two thousand. 13 and 0, 11 and 2, 12 and 2, 12 and 2, 12 and 1, 8 and 4, 11 and 3, 11 and 3, 12 and 2, 8 and 5, 12 and 2, 10 and 3, 10 and 3, 11 and 2, 8 and 5, 11 and 2, 11 and 2. And there is 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 conference titles in 17 seasons. It's one of the all-time great runs. He gets he gets um, criticized sometimes because they haven't. I mean, they haven't won the whole thing since 2000. They've played for it a few times. They made the playoff two years ago. They haven't won the whole thing. It's not like Saban who's racking up rings. I get it, but that is still a remarkable run. There's no way the next person will come close to that. Is he on your ever shifting top uh, coaching top twenty? Is he in your top five? 
I got yeah, a segue coming, Stu. Yeah, so I gotta. I guess I gotta uh, revisit that list. I can't remember where he was last year, but after these past two seasons, he definitely belongs very, very high up. Yeah, I would. I mean, I was. I'm tinkering on where where does Dabo go? Where does Jim Harbaugh go? I mean, I think he's in there with Jimbo Fisher. I would put him in the top six of that group. Um, you know what he's done. Now, as we do this, here's our segue. One of the guys that I always say you are too too light on who's worked wonders in Manhattan, Kansas, was in the news a lot last week. He sure was, for all the wrong reasons. All the wrong reasons. Uh, So, for starters, the coach can almost never will win for how he handles blocking the schools that a kid wants to – a player wants to transfer to. In my mind, the only valid way to – the only valid thing you could block is if the school itself has filed some kind of complaint or turned in somebody for tampering. And if that's the case, then I could say, okay, then, yeah, that's the school you can block. Some of these other ones, especially when you don't even play the team. I mean, I remember a few years ago, Derek Dooley wanted to block some receiver that they had from a Mac school and it was like, well, we ther- theoretically could play them in a bowl game. I'm like, I'm not even sure that matchup would is possible unless there was like, you know, everybody went five and seven around them, you know. But that's the pettiness you see with coaches. And and Bill Snyder not only went there, he went beyond there on camera. And I think that's what led the change into the policy there this week. So it is. It, it, you wonder like what kind of bubble the uh, coaches live in where they think this is going to be accepted that you can block kids from mass number of schools. But this Bill Snyder thing was was extreme. Uh, as it was reported, he just flat out, and as he confirmed, it wasn't that he was blocking him from certain schools, it was that he was blocking him from transferring entirely. And his explanation, as he was explaining it to, where where was that, at a, at a, at a function or something? Some kind of function. Yeah. I don't know exactly what it was As he for. was explaining it, I'm thinking, has he never let a kid transfer in his entire career? Because that's what he's making it seem like. He's saying, you know, uh, everybody wants to be the starter, but not everybody can be the starter. And if you let all and your numbers... this number is a guy two, who's taken, taken as many transfers as anybody. Yeah. So, of course, you know, we're going to try everything possible to keep that from happening. But, hey, you know... If he wants, he can still transfer. We're just not. He's just gonna have to walk on. Like you know, you want to go play somewhere else? Sure, go walk on. It was so bizarre and so. T- I mean, he took a lot of criticism and rightfully so. But I was almost like something's not right here. Uh, as we know, Bill Snyder is getting up there. He's seventy-seven, and he's been dealing with a very serious health issue this year. Um, it was. It was. It was frankly a little sad. He just seemed like. I mean, oh, and we're leaving out the, the the most important detail. He outed this kid for having failed multiple drug tests, which you can't do. So, I don't know. I, that was the first moment where I was like, you know, I think when these coaches are kind of legendary figures like he is, there's a certain deference where you say. This comes back to what we talked about a couple of weeks ago and how it usually doesn't end well for coaches. It really doesn't. Um they, they don't know when to, to call it, you know. He tried. He tried retiring. He did, it didn't suit him. The program went south for a few years. He came back. At the time, he indicated it was going to be a short-term thing. He's still going. And, you know, the stories this year were, like, you know, he's always getting cancer treatments, but he's still showing up for work every day as if that was something to be proud of. I don't know. This was the moment where I thought, uh-oh, this, this could be heading toward a very ugly ending. Yeah, and look, it was the first big test for the new AD came from North Dakota State. And, you know, from talking to some people around the K-State program, you know, John Curry, who's now the Tennessee AD, I think probably didn't get enough credit. There was some, you know, for how well he may have buffered the that dynamic, which is very awkward. You know, it's no secret Bill Snyder would love his son, Sean, the special teams coordinator, to be the head coach there. I, You know, you sometimes wonder – you know, how well are they thinking out some of, you know, it, clearly in that case, that was not well thought out or is was, was very tone deaf, as you said. And yeah, it's going to be a very interesting dynamic. The AD jumped in there. Bill Snyder issued an apology made it through a statement, you know, to the player. Um, but th- those are things you do not win on the on the public platform, especially as social media is now in 2017. 
I think when you're in Manhattan, Kansas, you probably can get away with some of it because there's less of a spotlight there than certainly if he was in the SEC or in Columbus, Ohio, or certainly, you know, at a lot of other more high profile programs. But um, once he outed the kids drug tests, he was painted. He was back in. He couldn't have he couldn't have possibly tried to block him at that point. I mean, I don't know. How that? I mean, could the kid have sued? I mean, he they basically you, violated you know, his Stu, right. Any any anybody can sue. The question is like, where would the case have gone? You know, the question is how it relates to HIPAA, and yeah. a lot of times coaches hide behind that HIPAA for other things. In the case of this, it's it seemed pretty damning to do it, especially on camera. It wasn't even like a he said she said kind of thing, right? I think that we both think he's one of the all-time great coaches. And uh, and so it's one of these things where you feel like you have to tread carefully. But I do think the end is, is now nearer than maybe we would have thought. And you're right. It's it's this political showdown that is coming, whether because his name is on the stadium, because he is that program, does he just basically get to say, I want my son to be the coach and he is the coach? Or will this new AD truly say i'm gonna hire whoever i think the best person for the job is my hunch is and i felt differently a you know a month or so ago when we had this conversation you know i thought hey it's bill snyder he deserves the right you know you name the field after him to you know to give his son a chance even if it's you know for whatever i think that because this became so public and was so awkward uh and they had to walk it back i think this probably diminishes the chances that sean will be the successor. I don't know if it diminishes it, you know, entirely or, if, but I do think to some degree, I think it, it, it hurts the chances going forward where the AD had to say, okay, I don't know what kind of thought process we're getting here, but if this is an example of it. Wow. So you think a little if the AD was having, and we, we don't know, I mean, he's still pretty new. We don't know what he was thinking yet in terms of a succession plan. Look, for all we but know, you think AD this is the out to- he may have needed. I don't know. I, I think it, it's possible if there because there is definitely some pushback on that. Look, for all we know, the AD who who obviously was the one who hired Craig Bowl may say, "Hey, Craig, I like what you're doing at Wyoming. You want to come come coach in the in the in the Big Twelve someday?" You know where he's that he's familiar with that part of the country. But I don't know. I that's that was a thought that cr- came to my mind as you know, like within 24 hours after this thing blew up the way it did. So. Long before Jerry Sandusky became what it became, I mean, years before that, it was clear to many people that Joe Paterno should go. He was constantly battling health issues. He was coaching in the press box by the end. He, I remember being around him at Big Ten Media Day 2010, so a full year before he would end up being fired. And it was like, wow, like... When it happens, it happens very abruptly. Because up before that, it was always like, "Well, he's seventy-eight, he's seventy-nine, but he doesn't—he doesn't seem like it. He's got the energy of a sixty-two-year-old." And then all of a sudden, it was like, "Nope, he is his age now." It always happens so quickly, and then they don't get out when they should. Bobby Bowden as well. I mean, the last decade of his time there was a mess. Bill Snyder, we think his team could be very good this year on the field. It hasn't really. There has been no sign yet that that you know things are slipping away but this was definitely a bit of a wake-up call moment well his staff certainly knows what he wants i think in terms of that regard they're they do a very good job working together i mean i've i've done a few of their games as a sideline reporter and they all seem to be on the same page and know what he wants so for you know to me that's that part where it's a little different whereas at fsu as i recall uh, with Bobby Bowden, you had a changing dynamic on the staff. You know, some guys got hired away from from FSU, and just the roles changed, and the staff chemistry got bad at at FSU. Whereas at K State, I don't think it's that way. At least to my knowledge, from what I heard, it's not. So that's one of the reasons why I think they were able to do things like the way they, you know, physically took it to what seems like a more talented team in Texas A&M, certainly in the bowl game, and why you think they're a top 15 team this year. Well, you know what the common thread was with both of those and with this was was loyalty to a son. You know, uh, oh, yeah, Florida yeah, State's yeah. offense under Jeff Bowden just got worse and worse, and he just kept hanging on to him until he finally couldn't do it any longer, and that's when they brought in Jimbo Fisher. Obviously, Jay Paterno remained Penn State's, at least co-offensive coordinator and certainly quarterback coach right up until the end. So, um, 
I don't know. I mean, Sean to this point is, from what it's been described, he's he's a he's special teams coordinator, but he's also like I don't know how would you describe it, chief of staff. Yeah, he's almost like an act an assistant head coach in that role too. Not yeah. from talking to guys in the Big Twelve, a lot of other coaches like Sean Snyder, and they think he does a really good job on special teams. So, but again, and look, we've seen guys who are special teams coordinators become head coaches. John Harbaugh is one, Tony Levine, Brian Polian. It's not un- that uncommon. So, but again, new AD and like you, like you're saying, top 15 caliber team going to be a really, really interesting 2017 in Manhattan, Kansas. I'll, while John Curry, the former AD is walking to into his own um, kind of messy situation at Tennessee and a possible coaching change if they struggle this year, I would say he got out of Manhattan at the right time. I would agree with you, 100%. All right. I think that's all for this edition, right? Yes. Then we're going to do a mailbag. Send your good questions in. Bruce, do you know what the email address is? Audible at uh, audible.com. Seriously. I've been reading this every week for three years. You don't know the email address. (laughs) No. No No wonder we don't get that many. We get a good number of emails. We don't get that many emails. Because the co-host doesn't even know the email address. This, this is a this is gonna be an outtake. We're gonna we need to make a big deal out of this. It is the Audible Pod at gmail.com. Again, the Audible Pod at gmail.com. Send your questions. We'll be answering them later this week. And as always, if you enjoy the Audible, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you get podcasts. Tell ten of your friends while you're at it. We'll see you next time. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.